0: This summer, Katie and Christine and I are going to preach this sermon series about the two small books in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth and Jonah, which have a common theme. We're calling the series Two Minority Reports from the Hebrew Bible, and as we go along, we'll tell you what we mean by that. First, we will start with the book of Ruth. I'm reading from chapter 1, and I'll read through verse 17 because these are some of the most beloved words in Scripture. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land of Judah, and a certain man from Bethlehem named Elimelech went into the country of Moab for food, he and his wife and two sons. His wife was named Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malin and Chilion. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. The two sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one wife was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. When they'd lived there about ten years, both of Naomi's sons also died, so that she was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food in Bethlehem. So she sent out from the place where she'd been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. Her daughters-in-law said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. And they wept aloud. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and said goodbye. But Ruth clung to her and said, Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So this woman named Naomi and her husband Elimelech are living in Bethlehem about a thousand years before Jesus is born there, when a famine strikes the land. They hear that there is food in the adjacent land of Moab, So they decide to migrate there with their two teenage sons. So as the crow flies, it's only about 40 miles from Bethlehem to Moab, but the Dead Sea lies between, so they have to walk about 100 miles to get there. It takes about seven days. Now they do this even though Judah and Moab hate each other. I know that's a strong word, but I'm using it intentionally. To be a Jew in Moab or to be a Moabite in Judea is to be as alien as alien can be. I pointed this out in a Bible study the other day, and Mark Fuller said, you mean it'd be like being a Packer fan at Soldier Field. (laughs) I wasn't exactly thinking in those terms, but I guess that about captures it. So Naomi and Elimelech and their two teenage sons make a living as immigrants in Moab. They live there about 10 years. The boys grow up and marry Moabite women as their wives. Also in that decade, Naomi's husband dies, and not only that, both of her sons die. It's not bad enough that Naomi's husband Elimelech is gone, but her two young sons, who aren't even 30 yet, are gone as well. Now, after Naomi's been in Moab for about 10 years, she's about 40 years old at this point. Her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, are about 24. After Naomi's been in Moab for 10 years, she hears that there's food again back in Bethlehem. So she decides to go home. She never liked Moab anyway. She didn't speak the language. She had no friends. She had nothing and no one except for her daughters-in-law. Nothing but that and a broken heart. Naturally, she thinks she's going back home alone, but her two daughters-in-law insist on going with her. She says, no way. You do not want to be a 24-year-old, childless, widowed, Moabite woman in Bethlehem. You will have no friends. Everybody will hate you because you're from Moab, and you won't speak the language. Now, Orpah is a sensible woman. This makes sense to her, so she stays in Moab, but Ruth... Ruth, she speaks those ancient, timeless, precious words that you hear at weddings inexplicably all the time. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried, exclamation point, argument over. Wow. Wow. Ruth is only 24 years old, but she is wise beyond her years. She decides to stick closer to Naomi than a golden retriever because she knows that grief is one of the loneliest places on earth. She knows that these two widowed, childless women are going to need each other now more than than ever before. Because no one understands what you're going through, exactly what you're going through, right? No one knows what to say. There are no good words in situations like this. But Ruth has shared Naomi's plight, so she goes with her. Now, grief is not only dreadful and confusing, it's also universal. We will all cause grief in another person or suffer grief ourselves, probably both, before we die. You know who Amanda Gorman is, don't you? The inaugural poet. She wrote that beautiful, splendid poem, The Hill We Climb. Then she published it as a book. It's a school district in Florida that has banned Amanda Gorman's book from its elementary school library. Now that poem is nothing but a long, eloquent, poignant paean to the glory of America's past and the hope of its future And yet, because one extremely unpatriotic parent complained, that book is gone. Anyway, elsewhere, Amanda Gorman says, grief is the grenade that always goes off. Yes? Grief is the grenade that always goes off. Someone else put it like this. Death is not a glitch in the human operating system. It's part of the program it's a feature so one prediction we can make at birth that we can bank on we're all going to die and it's highly likely that someone we love will die before we do and yet the bereaved are treated as if something disgraceful and unnatural has happened to them people avoid them fall silent when they enter the room and this happens just when grieving people need human companionship the most and so When Ruth insists on following Naomi to Bethlehem, she is making herself an alien in a foreign land. She won't have any friends. Everyone will hate her because she's from Moab. She won't speak the language. Now, obviously, in the last 10 years, Ruth and Naomi have figured out how to communicate with each other, probably with a patois of Arabic and Hebrew. But Ruth doesn't speak Bethlehem's language. She goes anyway because she shares Naomi's place. She knows exactly what Naomi's going through. Ruth puts her terrible grief to good use sticking with this older childless widowed woman. Now do the same for someone who's stricken in your life. You've been through stuff. You've been through terrible stuff. Put that terrible stuff to good use. But be warned, if you walk with a person who is brokenhearted, you are walking into a foreign land. You will not speak the language. Literally, you will not speak the language, because sometimes there are no words. So any word you do speak will be wrong or spoken with a heavy accent. But that's okay. Sometimes you don't need words. Leave a tater tot casserole on the front porch, ring the bell, and disappear. Send them an let us entertain you gift card, mow the lawn or send your gardener, clean the house or send your housekeeper, take the kids to the zoo. The purgatory of bereavement is universal, so therefore we might as well get good at dealing with it, right? Everybody grieves, even dogs. This holiday weekend, I am thinking about that intense, particular kind of grief we feel when we lose one of our fallen heroes. In December of 2010, U.S. Marine PFC Colton W. Rusk was killed by a sniper in Helmand, Afghanistan. Private Rusk was 20 years old. He'd been a machine gunner and a dog handler for the Marines. Now you probably know how precious dog-sniffing bombs are to the Marines. Each one of these dogs takes $40,000 to train. They're so precious they wear body armor. Marines learn dog anatomy so that they can properly treat the wounds of an injured dog. Now, many military companies will use German Shepherds or Melanois as their bomb sniffing dogs, but Colton's company used Labrador Retrievers. And Colton's dog was a three year old black lab named Eli. In a futile attempt to protect his master, Eli climbed on top of Colton's body when he was shot and fell. And you can probably guess which survivor is listed first in Colton's biography, Eli. Now, because it costs $40,000 to train these dogs, most bomb-sniffing dogs don't retire until they're eight or nine years of age. But when Colton died, Eli retired at the age of three. And they sent him home to Texas, to live with Colton's heartbroken parents. The minute Eli entered the Rusk house, he sniffed around for about four seconds, went straight to Colton's room, jumped on the bed, and stayed there. Colton's parents say he has been a great comfort to them. Maybe some of you have read the books and blogs of Glennon Doyle. Her books sometimes end up on the Times bestseller list. Glennon's sister Amanda was just crushed after an unexpected, unwanted divorce. At a very young age, she didn't know what to feel, she didn't know what to think, she didn't know what to do, and she didn't know where to go, so she moved into Glennon's basement. Just a spare room in the basement. And Amanda wanted this spare room to be as unadorned as possible so that she would not be tempted to stay there for too long. The only thing Amanda put on the wall was a small cross with a Bible verse from Jeremiah on it. I know the plans I have for you, says God, plans to give you hope and a future. Every night while Amanda lived with Glennon, she would come home from work, eat dinner, and then go down the basement stairs by herself to her room every night by herself, and then stayed there the rest of the evening. One evening, Glennon followed her sister down the basement steps, and she was about to knock on the door when she heard her sister crying softly within. And then Glennon says, It was at that moment that I realized that where she was, I could not go. Grief is a lonely basement room. No one can join you there. And so instead of knocking on the door, Glennon just sat on the basement floor with her back to the closed door, keeping silent vigil, guarding her sister's process. Not a word, just silent vigil. She stayed there for hours, And then she repeated that nightly vigil every night for a long time after that. Amanda stayed in Glennon's basement for a year, then moved out, got a new job, married a beautiful man, and started a family. And Glennon writes, that small dark room was like a cocoon. All that time, My sister was undergoing this complete metamorphosis. Grief is a cocoon from which we emerge anew. Yes? You will emerge anew. And it helps to have a sister who will sit on the basement floor with her back to the door, keeping silent vigil, or a daughter-in-law like Ruth who will walk with you every step of the way into a foreign land. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.